0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Oki Investigations. It's so good to say that. I am very happy to say that after a short few months, we are back on the air and better than ever. We now have our own studio and research office. no more recording in the middle of my house and <laughs> and here's the hoping that it all comes out, okay. I hope you all have been well over the last few months I want to thank all of you who've reached out uh, Wondering what's been going on I'm not the best at replying to those sorts of things But I want you all to know that we're okay Uh, We've just been going through a lot of changes here Which resulted in the show's kind of upgrade My ultimate goal here is to have the show sound The best that it can Uh, If you can listen to the first episode and then move up to this episode, I really hope that you can hear a difference. We went from using cheap microphones to uh, actual studio microphones. Uh, We've learned better editing techniques and upgraded software, and we now have our own recording studio that should improve the sound even better. But one of the things I've missed through all of this is getting to talk to all of you. So again... I hope all is well, and I thank you for listening to the show. Just a few formatting changes. We no longer are going to load the show with advertisements. Uh, We kept these to as few as we could, and Anchor has done great helping us earn enough money to pay the overhead costs for running the show uh, and over there at truecrime.blog. But we have some ideas on how to cover these costs down the road, so I thought it'd be cool to reward you all with the ad-free shows. If you do hear an advertisement or some kind of commercial in this broadcast, it didn't come from us. It probably came from the platform that you're listening from, or our platform forced them on. Either way, we didn't do it. But enough of that. If you want to know more about what's going on with the show... You can find us at facebook.com forward slash and on our website truecrime.blog. This episode contains sensitive topics such as rape, murder, and abduction, which may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This case is interesting because it's referenced in law schools, and we're going to break this one up in a couple of episodes today we're focusing on the victims in this case which is very important because it's the victims that seem to get forgotten in a lot of these stories so what i hope is that you all get a very good sense of who these people were and how tragic all of this was when this happened lives were not just ended uh, those around them lives were changed forever it's hard to describe the amount of pain and anguish Uh, those around the victims uh, seem to go through. And as you'll find out, that is a major factor about this case and why it is so controversial. We begin on July 11th, 1973, in Syracuse, New York. Kukoran High School was a pretty active school. They were in their summer session, That year, they would win the Section 3 Baseball Championships and were looking to be contenders again in the next year. Near the end of the day, a bell rang out. It was the fire bell, and the school was having a fire drill. The students and faculty exited the building, and they all gathered on a hill nearby. When the drill was over, several of those gathered went back into the school, some did not. One student, Alicia Hawk, decided that she would go ahead and head home for the day. Alicia was wearing a light blue knit body shirt, blue denim bell bottoms, and brown shoes. Her typical route home would include a shortcut through Elmwood Park, but today... For whatever reason, she decided to take a longer route through Glenwood Avenue. As she walked down the street, she was met with a stranger in a unique car. He probably didn't look very threatening. And Alicia got into the car when she was offered a ride. As the hours went by, Alicia didn't come home. Her parents became worried and searched for her. Eventually, they contacted the authorities. Even though this was not her typical behavior, and she disappeared with no apparent reason, the police treated this like a typical runaway case in the beginning. As the days went by and no leads came in, Youth Division Chief Lieutenant William Reddy started looking into other possibilities for the missing youth. Two 14-year-old boys had recently escaped from the Elmcrest Children's Center, a home for troubled youth. They were not gone long, but it did fit the timeline of events. The authorities followed that lead but found no evidence that the two boys ever came in contact with the missing girl. Police also looked into another missing person's report, a 19-year-old girl that was also reported missing on the same night that Elisa went missing. But a few days later, that girl was found safe. This was very hard on Elisa's parents. Her father would stop by the police station and check in and see if there were any new leads going on. And her mother would cry any time the weather would be bad. She believed that her little girl was suffering out there in the elements. On July 16th, just five days after Alicia's disappearance from the Kukoran High School, another high school student was reported missing. This time it was 15-year-old Marsha Hunter. She was last seen when she left her house for school that morning. The police looked into the theory that the two disappearances were linked, but found no reason why they would be. The authorities believed that the girls were both in hiding, but not together. They put out a statement to the press that if they feared that they were in trouble, they need not worry. Running away was not a crime, and that they could come back without the fear of getting in trouble. But this is not to say that the police had given up on the idea that foul play wasn't at hand here. They knew the route that Elisa typically took when she walked home, and it was through a wooded park. Searchers mounted and searched the park with the help of bloodhounds, although they found nothing. Concerned friends of the Hawk family put together a $1,000 reward for information leading to Elisa's whereabouts. Along with this news, Chief Reddy wanted the girl's friends to know If they knew where either girl was, they should call the police right away. They can keep their identity secret, if they wanted, so that no one would ever know that they made the report. Three days later, Marsha Hunter returned home, unharmed. She had simply run away. This seemed incredibly unfair to Lisa's parents, since their daughter's disappearance Two other local girls had gone missing and returned home, unharmed and safe. As each day passed, they became more and more desperate to find their little girl. They prepared over a thousand posters and put them up wherever they could. The police got Elisa's description out to state officials all over to better their chances of spotting her. Meanwhile, as all of this is happening, On July 20th, 1973, police nearby receive a report of something disturbing found in a gully in the Adirondack Mountains. A man was dead. When the police arrived at this scene, they were met with a puzzling sight. A car was parked, abandoned nearby. The man's body was a 100 feet away, down at the bottom of a gully. They found identification showing that the body was that of 22-year-old Daniel Porter. There was also evidence in the car that he was accompanied by a woman. They soon learned that this was his girlfriend, Susan Petz. The bizarre thing about this was that it was obvious that Daniel had been murdered. He had several stab wounds to the back and chest and it was also obvious that he had been left in the gully for days. But there was no sign of Susan anywhere. She had not turned up or tried to contact her family or friends. Police began to search around the area, believing that the worst had happened to Susan as well. But they found nothing. And when I say they found nothing, I mean nothing. There was no apparent reason for this murder, besides the fact that Susan was now missing. You see, the two of them were heading in the Adirondacks to go camping for a while. This is how they could be missing for days and no one suspects a thing. Along with that, they brought very expensive photography equipment with them. All of this was still in the car when it was discovered by police. On top of this, any evidence that had been on or around Daniel's body was long gone at this point. There was heavy rainfall in this area recently, and water had been running down the gully, likely washing away any evidence. Police gathered over 50 searchers, including bloodhounds and helicopters, to search the area, but the terrain was so hard to search. The underbrush was thick and overgrown. The bloodhounds couldn't get a scent, and it was just hard for the helicopters to see through the canopy of trees. Everything just seemed to be against authorities in this case. As time went by, detectives had to consider all possibilities in this case. Could Susan have had a hand in Daniel's death? It was worth considering, but when you spoke to those that knew them, It was very hard to believe. You see, Daniel was well-known and liked by his peers. He had worked as a treasurer for the Cambridge Survey Research Organization that conducted polls for the presidential campaign of George McGovern the year prior. Senator McGovern knew Daniel and took a personal interest in this case. Daniel also worked at the Harvard Crimson paper as a photography co chairman. His former co worker at the Harvard Crimson, Timothy Carlson, had written an article in the paper on July 24, 1973, entitled Danny D. Porter. In it, he describes learning of Daniel's death and the shock that it brought. He also describes the last time he saw Daniel. He was with Susan, and they seemed like everything was just so perfect. They talked for a while and told Timothy that they were going camping that next weekend, and after that, Daniel planned on doing some serious work on campaigns again. As the days dragged on and searchers found nothing in the area, Susan's parents feared the worst. Each day searchers made their way into the woods, each day they came back empty-handed. At this point, it was hard to say what happened, besides that there was a chance that there was a lover's quarrel, and one, possibly two people lost their lives. Campers continued to enter the Adirondacks, not fearing what might happen. On Sunday, July 29th, 1973, Carol Ann Malawinsky, David Freeman, Philip Dombolwelski, and Nicholas Fiorilla were all camping in the Adirondacks. Two of the men had left camp and gone fishing that morning. The other two were enjoying the day in camp. A few hours later, a man approached their camp. He didn't appear threatening at the time except for the rifle he held back out of view of the campers in the tent. When he was close enough, he brought the rifle up and aimed it at the door of the tent. The two campers inside did not see him coming. The gunman ordered them out of the tent, and slowly they emerged, visibly frightened. The gunman seemed on edge. He told them that no one needed to get hurt. He just wanted their gas. But things got a little more complicated when unexpectedly the two boys who had went fishing had just returned to camp. The gunman quickly ordered one of the campers to tie the others to opposite trees where they could not see one another. He reportedly told them, "I killed before." and I will kill again. When they were all tied up, the gunman produced a knife and stabbed one of the men in the heart. It didn't take long for things to fall apart for the gunman. Two of the campers, Carol and one of the surviving men, were able to wiggle free of their bonds and were able to escape on foot. They ran to the road and were able to flag down help. The other surviving camper was taken hostage for a short time, but he was then able to escape from the gunman's car, which was described as an orange foreign fastback. He, too, was able to find help pretty quick. Now, you have to understand, there was already a police presence in this area. They had been looking for Sarah, And now, there were reports of another attack. They quickly got the description of the killer's vehicle uh, to the police that were on the search. This proved to be invaluable to the effort. The car was spotted driving in the early morning with its headlights off. Believing that they had their suspect, police gave chase. But eventually, the suspect was able to ditch his car and run into the heavily wooded area. Police lost sight of him quickly in the woods. Now, this is purely speculation because I really couldn't find any rhyme nor reason for ditching at this point. But I think it could be as simple as he was obviously looking for gas. And perhaps his car was already pretty low. So he had to ditch at this point, because if he were to run out during a better put-together chase, he would be caught for sure. Police gathered at the abandoned car. They used that as a spot for base camp for the time being. Hundreds of officers gathered from all around the agencies. They had a manhunt on their hands. In less than 24 hours, they were able to make a positive ID on who this killer was. He was Robert Garrow, a man who is well known to authorities as the worst type of human being. He was a serial rapist, already on the run from the law when he didn't show up to court. They made a positive ID from the car that was registered to him, and they showed the surviving victims his photo, And they made the positive ID. Now this here is where we're going to leave today's story. Uh, Join us next time for part two of the Buried Bodies case. Uh, If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And that way, whenever that is released, you will be the first to know. Also, you can hop on over to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Investigations if you'd like to know more information about this case. And you can also check out our website at truecrime.blog. Thank you all so much for joining us today, and I will see you next time. See ya.